This is an ABC podcast. listening to A Big Country. I'm Clint Jasper. Thanks for joining me. This week, we're meeting a young Tasmanian couple who are continuing a family legacy. They're growing rare varieties of beans collected from far-flung corners of the world. We'll join a sewing class where women from refugee, migrant and asylum seeker backgrounds are learning new skills and trying out electric sewing machines for the first time. And we'll meet Amy the Sheep. Her new family have been eagerly awaiting the ripe Her new family have been eagerly awaiting the arrival of their prized rare breed animal that hails from a mountain region of Switzerland and is renowned for its cute appearance. She has a full black face with black ears. Both the males and the females have horns. They also have black knees. The females have a black spot on their butt and the boys don't. So yeah, it's another way you can do it. But they're known as the cutest sheep in the world. We describe them as the labradoodle of the sheep world. Basically, they're just happy to be just with you. We'll meet the happy owners of that very cute sheep and discover what they plan to do with her now. That is coming up. First today, we're heading to the small town of Oberon in the New South Wales central Tablelands, where retired school teacher Meg Lowe is drawing attention from locals and tourists as she heads into town for her morning coffee, riding in a sulky drawn by miniature horses. Tim Fuchs caught up with Meg and has her story. Yeah, fairly regular on a nice day. Come up the street on the horses, grab a hot chocolate. Yeah, pretty pretty normal. That would be normal for most people, wouldn't it? Normally they'd be walking into the cafe, but you've, oh. we've pulled up here with your two horses. What are their names? The one in front is a Palomino, so he's a chip colour, so very original name. He was called Chip. And the one behind me is a black and white horse and she's called Posy because she thinks she's just a little Posy. And so this is, um, this is what you do in Oberon? I do. This is my retirement dream. I thought about this when I was literally 17. I thought one day I'll get a horse and pony, but I've gone from the larger horses now just down to the miniatures and this is just a dream. This is what I do. It's just a hobby. This sort of activity has kept me in Oberon. We came here as teachers 40 years ago and we weren't going to stay, but it's a very simple, easy-going lifestyle and this is the sort of thing you can do and the whole community supports you and it's the sort of thing that keeps you in Oberon. And so you've been pulled in a sulky. Uh, What's it like in terms of other motorists and everyone in the community? Oh, no. The Oberon community have been absolutely fantastic. I think country people know that you just go round the horses slowly, even though they're fairly fairly good with traffic, you go round them slowly, you don't bip your horn and wave frantically, certainly don't do that, and the Oberon community are wonderful. I seem to be able to stop anywhere I like and they just go round me. We've arrived here now at your home where you've got this incredible garden, tell us a bit about it. Gerlock Garden. Peter and I set up Gerlock Garden when we first built about 40 years ago. Gerlock's named after the place in Scotland, Gerlock, because both our relatives come from Scotland. Grandparents and Peter's father came from Scotland, so that's where the name came from. And we're just keen gardeners, and believe it or not, just it started little and then bit by bit we had ideas, and now it's grown into this two thirds of an acre. Uh, garden. So with the horse rides around town, <laughs> with the garden and the other things you do, it's a, it's a lovely life up here. 
it's a pretty easy life. As I've said before, I think that's what keeps us in Oberon, just the country life, very easy, no traffic to contend with of, of any description. And yeah, we're just living the dream. Mm. And Peter, I might ask you, um, on the horses um, in, in particular, when Meg told you that she wanted to, um, <laughs> that she bought these, wanted to buy miniature horses to ride around Oberon, uh, yeah. what did you think? <laughs> Well, I'm not a horse person. I didn't appreciate appreciate what's involved, but I've certainly yeah, learned learned that it's quite involved and expensive hobby sort of thing. So <laughs> I'm not I'm not much of a support to her. I must admit. That's right. But Meg's made made a bit of a name for herself. People know about Meg around town. Yeah, well, for a number of reasons, but that's certainly one. That's right. Yeah, no, she's a, she's certainly known around town for her. Um, I was going to say eccentric, that might be a little bit too harsh, but uh, she's, uh, she's certainly well known anyway with a variety of activities she's involved in. One final question about the horses. Um, the amount of work that goes into getting them ready to go on the road, uh, Meg? Oh, you, you know, people think miniature horses especially are just pets, but they're not. They've got to remember they're horses, so you know, they need their feet trimmed and they, their teeth checked and all the gear's got to be safely, make sure all the the buckles do up properly and there's a little bit of work and that's where Peter he he underestimates what he does he fixes all the flat tires I get and he's had a couple of calls where I've had a blowout and he has to bring up a tire and you've just got to make sure that the safety's there especially if you're going in, in amongst traffic yeah absolutely and um, one of the things you said it's uh, the horses get to know you they get to they get to know the person riding they absolutely do and that's why there's very few people I, I let drive them because they certainly know if somebody gets in the seat and they don't know how to drive, they, they look quiet but they won't be if someone else gets in there and they pick that they can't drive them. Yeah, yeah. they're I very intelligent. When you stopped to get a coffee at, uh, at the cafe, I saw the looks of the kids looking out the window, mums and dads pointing, saying, look at that. That must bring you amazing joy. Yeah, it does. I mean, I do it, I do it a lot for myself because I just love doing it, but... It does. It's all the city kids, especially that are coming up, and they've just never seen it. Well, most people haven't seen, I guess, yeah. a horse and sulky in the main street. But those city kids that have patted a horse, they come and pat them. Never patted a horse before. Never seen a horse before. Mm. And they pat them and take photos, and it's just a nice thing to do. They'll remember Oberon, won't they? <laughs> Certainly will. This one, Bob. Uh, no, this is a bean, a black bean. Um, that comes from the mountains of north central Mexico, some elevation, quite cool. It's done very well here. Plant geneticist Bob Reed is passing on his precious knowledge to the next generation his grandson Jesse and Jesse's wife Helen. I, I love plants, it's always been a love of my life. Like I, that's what I studied at uni. And yeah, when I first met Jesse and introduced to all his family and that, Bob has always fascinated me with his plant stuff. That is, and it's always sort of been like this mysterious secret that he held because to him it's like, oh, it's everyday stuff. Whereas for me it was like, wow, you do what? You've done what? It's amazing, incredible. And yeah, it sort of just always tickled my interest a little bit. Hello, I'm Larissa Smith. I'm chatting with Helen, Jesse, and Bob who are inspecting a plot of beans growing at the Cressy Research Station in northern Tasmania. For decades, Bob has been collecting beans from far-flung corners of the globe, and now Helen and Jesse are growing out many of the different species, seeing which are suited to the Tasmanian environment. Uh, this row has 48 different varieties of 
Bayesiolus vulgaris, so green beans. And we have a range here that come from all over the world and are quite specific to like the locales where they've been selected by the population there as their culinary beans. So they specialise to a very niche level what they want their bean to be and it becomes its own variety at the end of the day. What do they have to look like before you know they're ready to pick? Um, if you listen to it, quite dry sounding. They The pods go quite papery. They go from leathery to quite papery. The plant also starts dying off. So if you see the stems, they've gone brown and most of the plant's brown. So these aren't going to get any drier. There's no nutrition that's going into them anymore. So they're done. And as you can see, this one's actually started to split as they dry out they'll split open so you want to pick them before they actually do that so this whole plant can actually come up because it's not going to do anything more out here I'll just crack one open so you've just tipped out a handful of beans and yeah. I've got few sort of brown speckles on yeah, them yeah yeah little caramel sort of colors on them where are they from we've got it listed from its succession name which was Pinto U1111 and it's a variety of cowboy bean from probably lower America. They love their tacos and yes. things like that, <laughs> enchiladas. Mm, they do, yeah. So we don't know what these ones taste like, don't know what many of these taste like because we ourselves have not had the pleasure to eat them yet. Um, but yeah, that's something that we are hoping to do is to actually grow enough of these that we can taste test them all and experiment with them a bit because some of these are very versatile where they've come from. They eat them fresh, they eat them dry and cooked. There is some knowledge that has been lost in time with some of these things and also some of them, they're just accession numbers so they're not something that has been commonly used. Um, so yeah, it's all experimental with some of this stuff. What do you want to do with the beans once you've, you've grown them out to commercial quantities? We would like to sell them and get them out there because there's a lot of these things that, as far as we know, are not around Tasmania or Australia. Some of Bob's collection has been distributed around and is for sale, um, but a lot of it is still um, just sitting in your shed just with a lot of potential and nothing's ever really happened with it. So we'd like to grow it up and make sure that it is you know, resistant to the Tassie environment as well as the pests and that. And with the hope that, you know, it can be utilised by farmers and gardeners and that. So, yeah, we're hoping that um, we could start a bit of a, a general seed business for everyday people, but we've also got some things that we're going to approach seed companies with for agricultural sales. I mean, we've got um, grasses as well for pastures that Bob's been sort of very recently handballed to us a little bit. So, yeah, hopefully there'll be some things here. We've got some fodder crops already that look like they might have some potential. We just have to find some people that might be interested in it because there is that need with global warming and you know, the seasons are changing very slowly, but it will become a thing where we will need things that can deal with hotter summers but still the really cold Tassie winters. And you must get a kick out of continuing Bob's legacy, really. Yeah, it has been, a, I guess, a very interesting time as far as the family is concerned because as the grandchildren were all getting into, you know, their careers and areas of interest and passion, uh, it didn't look like there was going to be anyone to sort of pass the torch down to. <laughs> so I started in environmental science and you started in zoology mm. and we both ended up in 
plant science together as sort of being a real passion area. So my focus was in genetics and yours was general horticulture. And mm. it was sort of a, a perfect match really for carrying on his legacy as such. So it has been very exciting to sort of be a part of that journey because it is just incredible to see the material that he's collected and then to be able to sort of sit down and have a, a, a cuppa with him, take out a packet of seed and find out where he collected it from because most of them he's actually been there and he's quite often has hand collected them himself. So you find out about all sorts of interesting and remote parts of the world that it's very unlikely that I'm going to get the opportunity to see myself. So it's, yeah, very rewarding from that sense. It's not collected because it looks cool or it could be... Um, significant for selling later on is because it has a story about the culture where it's come from. Just, I love that. Helen and Jessie Reed, they were talking to Larissa Smith about their new business venture, growing beans from seeds collected by Jessie's grandfather, Bob, from more than 20 countries around the world. You can read more about that story online, head to the RN homepage and look for A Big Country under programs. I'm Clint Jasper with you on RN, still to come, the program that's helping migrant women learn how to sew, allowing them to make clothes and bags and grow their confidence stitch by stitch. And could it be the cutest sheep in the world? We'll hear all about a breed that's considered the labradoodle of sheep as a special animal touches down in Tassie. I'm standing on the edge of a quiet rural airport on a beautiful, clear autumn Saturday. A plane has just landed, but it's not your usual passenger plane. It's called the Pormobile, designed to carry pets across the Bass Strait. And this time, it's carried a 55 kilogram U. One, two, 60 odd kilos, one's enough. <laughs> How are you feeling? Excited. I'm <laughs> very excited. Hello, I'm Meg Powell. I'm waiting with Rick and Kathy Pearson and their daughter Georgie at this airport in northern Tasmania. They're about to meet Amy, their one-year-old purebred Valet Blacknose, a rare breed of sheep from Switzerland, which some claim is the cutest breed of sheep in the world. Silly time. <laughs> Still no sign of Amy. No, it's patiently waiting. We've got to wait for the dogs and that to get off first and then we can get Amy. You excited to see her? Yes. <laughs> She's a big cuddly, big cuddly girl. <laughs> Have you ever met Amy, Georgie? Uh, I've only seen pictures of her. Mm, yeah. You must be very excited then. Are you excited? Yeah. <laughs> but why she's not on the plant and she's not in here? To keep well, her separate from the dogs. Oh yeah. Here she is. Yes. Here she is. How was the flight, Amy? No complaints. No complaints at all, hey? She didn't want to come out of the box, did she? <laughs> She's gorgeous. Oh. What do you think of her, Georgie? She's so big. She is big, isn't she? Do you want me to take this off her now? She's uh, so yeah, big. Yeah, right. She's got yeah. complete control. Yeah, I've got her. Yeah. Thank you very much. Can I? Can I hold Amy's it? our nearly one-year-old Valet, who's coming over for um, introduce a breed to Tasmania, pretty much, and yeah, future breeding you. So yeah, they've only been in Australia three years now, 
yeah. roughly. Um, a lady introduced them after a, a lot of work. Um, so yeah, they're originally from Switzerland, um, up in the hills up there. And yeah, she finally managed to get them into Australia. And yeah, they're just a beautiful, big, cuddly sheep, pretty much. Um, they're a rare breed. Um, I think there's something like 19,000 worldwide. So they're very, very rare. Um, they haven't been allowed out of the UK for a long time. Um, so that keeping their lines really pure. Um, and they've finally been accepted into Australia through embryos and semen. So we've started the breeding up program with that. So yeah, finally here. What's that, Georgie? So cute. Okay. And they look so cute. That's right. <laughs> For our radio audience, could you explain what Amy looks like? Yeah, Amy is. Um, she, well, she's currently 55 kilos, and she weigh. Uh, she's a year old. She has a full black face with black ears. Um, both the males and the females have horns. Um, they also have black knees, and also black. Um, the the females have a black spot on their but and the boys don't so yeah it's a, another way you can do it but they're known as the cutest sheep in the world yeah and they definitely are yeah <laughs> she's been beautiful we describe them as the labradoodle of the sheep world basically they're just happy to be just with you she's so placid and she's got this beautiful thick woolly coat that you can see would be perfect in a cold european mountain somewhere yeah definitely they're actually um getting more endangered in um switzerland due to the wolf repopulation and that sort of stuff over there so it's getting very very hard for them yeah so not many purebreds around we're just about to do an AI again for the, our F1 girls, so we'll have some F2s on the ground, so they'll be 75% pure Valet, wow. which is which is brilliant because, yeah, they're just adorable. You go outside with your coffee or um, a drink in the afternoon and they'll just come and sit down beside you and just they just love to be near you. Is, is that part of their appeal? Because they're not really bred for eating and they're not really bred for their wool. No, you could... They're, they're a meat and wool sheep, but, yeah, I can't imagine anybody wanting to eat them. But, um, but yeah, the placidness of them, and they're just so loving and gentle. It's so great for hobby farms and that sort of stuff that just want animals around to help keep, you know, the, on top of the grass and all that sort of stuff. But they're just an unusual talking point and, and just so sweet. Speaking of hobby farms, you and Rick came over here from Victoria with a bit of a dream for a a lifestyle yourselves yeah we um we used to live in Mildura and we ran a boarding kennel and cattery over there and once um we had a little Georgie we decided we wanted to um just have a bit more of a slower lifestyle and um hobby farm and that sort of thing and then as we moved over here and it wasn't long after we moved here that we heard that they were available now to import so we just went with that and all our dreams were just falling into place that was great and where did you hear of the black nosed valet because it's not a commonly known breed no i just saw it on facebook one time and um it somebody popped it up because we used to breed alpacas and somebody popped it on my page saying oh you should look into these and i absolutely love them they just look like big stuffed animals and they just look like a toy and they're so sweet and that's when i fell in love with them and yeah waited and waited and quiet and waited and they finally came. Keep going. Oh my gosh. This is rewarding part. I like it. <laughs> <laughs>
In this sewing room in northeast Victoria, women from refugee, migrant and asylum seeker backgrounds are learning to sew. For many, it's the first time they've been on a sewing machine. Yeah, we did these out the first day, but she wasn't here. <laughs> it is a zigzag exactly. stitch. It's more of a herringbone yeah, stitch or an overlock stitch. Hello, I'm Alison Jess, and I'm meeting some of the women taking part in this sewing class. My name is Beatrice Nema. Beatrice Yamajan. I come from Congo. Me too, I'm from Congo. Hi, Ziki. I come from Congo, yes. I want to know how to sew because I like it. And every time when there's something wrong for my clothes, I have to to take it somewhere, but now I can do by myself. I want to know how to sew my clothes and my kids' clothes. And you're all from the Congo. Is Do you do sewing at all there? Like No. No. Can I say you're all refugees? Yes, yes. we are yes. refugees, yes. yeah. Because in our country there is a war. Uh, every time people kill other people, Tanzania, yeah. It's the same, same story because of war. It was very, very hard. The life there was very, very terrible. Yeah. I want to make a flower here in the middle. The classes are a collaboration from social enterprise group Sisterworks and the Albury Wodonga Ethnic Communities Council and aims to empower women. That is good. Yeah, I, like, I like it. I think the under one is finished. Yeah. Yeah. Every time we told our teacher, it's not enough time. Two hours is not enough because we enjoyed, we don't have the time goes quick, quick, because we enjoy, we are together, we are chatting, laughing, yeah, yeah. happy. The skills, it opened our mind because when we are here, we, we know something, there's some names, I think the name, the word for the machine before we didn't know how to call it, everything here, but we learned that one because we learn in English or English, we develop our English also. The skills you are learning, so what are you going to do with them? If we learn and we get maybe uh, another level, we can open our business. This is is uh, my dream yeah, to to get uh, something to do by myself. Yeah. If I know where, I can open the sh uh, the business. Yeah, she she will make her clothes. And also, if she gets chance to continue to learn, to learn, she can open also her business. I think if I improve to uh, more experience here, okay, I am going to store another another course for for other people to make business. <laughs> you do these too? Yeah, oh my god. So when you do these ones, you push this right over to SS and then you put get the number. So if we do 24, you turn around. Hi, I'm Beryl Hartshorn. I've been sewing for over 60 years. I'm just the teacher. 
At the moment, they're making bags. They also made a glasses case, which a lot of them turned into their phone case. So they're learning to do buttonhole stitch, at sew a button on, do sew Velcro. Uh, and when they go to the intermediate class, they learn how to draw up their own patterns for bags. And I've given them paperwork on how to change patterns, draw up their own patterns to fit with measurements and everything. So hopefully this is a start. And they've spoke about making clothes for their families, but also about the potential of a business. That's so right. that's what you're encouraging here? That's what I'm encouraging. And I'm hoping by the end, maybe by the end of the year, that these ladies will be coming back and teaching the new ladies and not me. I'll just come and, and sit and watch and advise. Yeah. Good. Yeah, that is good. Excellent. Teacher Beryl Hartshorn and some of the participants in sewing classes for refugee, migrant and asylum seeker women in Wodonga in northeast Victoria, ending that report from Alison Jess. Before that, Meg Powell was waiting for the arrival of Amy, the black-nosed valet sheep, and you can see more on that story, including some pictures and a video of Amy the sheep. You'll find it online at the RN homepage. Head to abc.net.au slash rn, then click on the Programs tab to find more stories from a big country. That's the show for today. Thanks for listening and bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.